Matthew 22, verse 23 through 33. The same day Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this for your precious word this morning. We thank you uh, for blessing it to us. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to teach us and change us uh, through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last week we looked at a, a dreadful attempt to defame Jesus by this interesting and unholy alliance uh, between the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians. And this morning we come and consider a second attempt at the same by a different group known as the Sadducees. And our text tells us that members of this group came to Jesus and asked him a question. They carefully couched the question in, uh, amidst a uh, kind of a far-fetched hypothetical situation involving the establishment of the kinsman redeemer, if you look at verse 24, they come to Jesus and say, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, to our ears, this is a strange, strange, uh, very strange uh, and bizarre practice. Uh, um, but had we grown up in the Old Testament culture, we would have understood the provision as a serious matter. Uh, to the ancient mind, to be left um, without a heritage was one of the worst things that could happen to you. One of the greatest things that, that, uh, that the ancients were afraid of was the name that they inherited from their father and the name that their father had inherited from his father uh, would pass away, away and be extinguished. And after all, if this happened, what would become of the inheritance? Uh, what would become of your family line? Well, the answer to all this was that the nearest relative would marry the widow of the deceased in order to carry on that line. And as he did so, he would be functioning as a kinsman redeemer. Uh, Boaz would be probably the most famous of these in the book of Ruth if you're familiar with the book of Ruth. In fact, the book of Ruth is one of the books that I've been toying with and going into uh, next after our study of Matthew. 
uh, is over with. I've been toying with Job and I've been toying with Ruth and uh, it would probably be one of the two. Um, but back to our text, here's a question. Here's the question they pose. Uh, they say there were seven brothers among us, verse 25. The first married and died having no children, left his wife to his brother. So what we have going on here is, is uh, the, presumably the oldest marries. Uh, he dies before they have children. Second oldest performs the work of the kinsman redeemer, marries the widow. They, they, they have no children. He, before, he dies with no children. And down through all seven brothers, this takes place. And then finally, uh, the woman herself uh, dies. Uh, and the question here is, in the resurrection, uh, whose husband, or whose wife, rather, will she be? Now, if, if we were part of the first century audience watching and listening, uh, we would have known something's up here. Uh, we'd have known it because we would have known this about the Sadducees. We'd have known the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. You know, in fact, Acts 23 and verse 8 tells us that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. I mean, they don't believe in any of this stuff. Uh, they, they were pretty much like the secularists of our day who only believe in the here and now, what you can see, feel, taste, and touch. Uh, this world is everything. After you die, you're just done. Uh, that's it. Uh, so why are they posing this outrageous hypothetical question uh, to Jesus? Why pose this? Uh, well, the answer is they're trying to ensnare him. They're trying to entrap him. I think the best thing that could be said about him is maybe they're trying to win Jesus to their side. You know, maybe they, if they win him to their side in their minds, they think he'll cool it about all this resurrection rhetoric and angels and life after death and all of that stuff, which they regarded as complete and total nonsense. That would be the very best spin we could put on what's going on. Uh, but most probably what's going on here, and I think we have every reason to believe that what's going on here, is they're hoping that they'll trip him up. Where he'll say, you know what, fellas, I mean, I, man, gee, I don't know. This is a perplexing situation here. I, uh, you got me here. I have, wow, I, I just don't know. Uh, whose wife she'll be. Uh, then, of course, they could say, look, what kind of teacher are you? You don't know any more than the rest of us. And he would lose his credibility. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 27, or for verse 29, rather. You're wrong. He says, you're wrong. You're wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. It's an interesting thing about the way Jesus responds to these things is He is so succinct and he says so many things with just so little words. You know, here we have a rebuke and a diagnosis in the same response, don't we? A rebuke and a diagnosis. The rebuke, you're wrong. The diagnosis, why are you wrong? It's because you know neither the power of God nor the Scriptures. You, need, you neither know your Bibles or the power of God. John Calvin summed it up this way when he said, quote, since God makes known His will clearly in the Scriptures, the want of acquaintance with them is the source and cause of all errors. I'll read it to you again. Since God makes known His will clearly in the Scriptures, the want of acquaintance with them is the source and cause of all errors. False teachers are flourishing in the United States today. They're flourishing. Why are they flourishing? Because we don't know our Bibles. 
It's as simple as that. If people knew their Bibles, these folks wouldn't have an audience. We don't know our Bibles. How do you discern truth from error if you don't know your Bible? You know? And the wages for not knowing the Word of God are awful. They're awful. I mean, we think about um, how many ways we've sinned against our Lord because we're unaware of, uh, of what God says in the Bible. Or we could think of how many heartaches we have endured and caused our loved ones to uh, undergo because we made choices that were just out of step with God's will. I mean, all of us have been there, haven't we? What justification do we offer for uh, this neglect? And, and really think of what possible advantage do we gain from it? What advantage do we gain from not knowing our Bibles? Probably the most common answer to that is, well, we have spare time for other pursuits, but what pursuits could be more important than this? And our minds really should be flourishing in the Word of God, not rotting in front of the television set. That's really what should be happening. Well, Jesus does not hesitate to tell the Sadducees they're wrong. And let's be really clear this morning, uh, He wouldn't hesitate to tell us we're wrong either without the scriptures I and mean, we have no way of knowing right from wrong we have no way of knowing right from wrong I mean there's no human being who can make that determination and I, I think human behavior proves that we all know this in our culture there's a kind of etiquette that um, really looks down upon going around saying to one another you're wrong You know, it, 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 as a culture, I mean, we feel that this is kind of a rude thing to do. It's, it's an inappropriate thing to do. It's commonly reasoned, after all, who am I to say to someone else that they're wrong? And if we've jettisoned the Scriptures, if we've thrown the Scriptures out, well, then all we're left with is our opinions. I think we all know that. That's all we're left with. And I'd have to say that if all we're going to do is assert opinions, lost opinions with one another... Uh, then I, I think culture's right. It is wrong to kind of assert that my lost opinion is better than your lost opinion. To do so would be overbearing, but we need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. What's he saying? You're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Why is it wrong to steal someone else's property, for instance? Why is it wrong to steal? Someone might answer, well, it's wrong to steal because you wouldn't want someone to steal your property. That's, that's why it's wrong to steal. That's not why it's wrong to steal. That's not the answer at all. It's wrong to steal because God says it's wrong to steal. That's why it's wrong to steal. Because God said it's wrong to steal. Why is it wrong to cheat on our taxes? Because God says it's wrong to cheat on our taxes. Why? Yeah, you know, it's widely recognized that the only way for us to know right from wrong is to have exhaustive knowledge of all things. The only way to know right from wrong is to have exhaustive knowledge of all things. None of us have exhaustive knowledge of all things. And as a consequence, we're dependent on the only one who does have exhaustive knowledge of all things to tell us what is right and what is wrong. Well, He has done this in His Word. And therefore, it's not wrong to tell someone that they're wrong if they're living out of step with God's Word. In fact, it's the loving thing to do. 
Uh, Jesus is here proving that's the loving thing to do. The Sadducees come to him with this question. They're clearly in error. They're out of step with the word of God. What does Jesus do? Does he say, well, you know, I shouldn't really tell them. If I tell them they're wrong, the place is going to think I'm being rude here. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to be quiet. No, he tells them they're wrong. He does it in a loving way, but he tells them they're wrong. Uh, but there's more to what Jesus is doing here than morality. I mean, there's more than, to this than knowing right from wrong. There's more to this than knowing what God expects of us or what pleases him. Uh, there are a lot of mysteries in life, aren't there? I mean, there's a lot of perplexities in life. There's a lot of things that we just simply cannot come to understand uh, through empirical observation, if you will, or through science. Science does not answer all questions for us. Uh, for example, science can do nothing with miracles. Miracles defy science. Mir miracles defy science because they defy the natural order. Science can only observe the natural order and make observations from the natural order. But miracles, miracles occur when God commands the natural order to do things that the natural order generally doesn't do. In fact, never does unless God commands them to do. And the resurrection really is really the miracle of all miracles, isn't it? And that's what's on the table here. The Sadducees did not believe in the possibility of a resurrection. They believed that once a person died, he was done, as sometimes we hear in some of those songs, I think an Elwin Bishop song, you know, when you're dead, you're done. He sings over and over again in song. Some say that when you're dead, you're just done. Um, lots of people believe that. That's what the, fair, or the Sadducees believed. Uh, but they were in the dark about one of God's greatest promises. Notice how Jesus enlightens them down in verse 31. He says, if you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, now, let's remember Jesus' indictment here. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, men have trouble believing that which they cannot comprehend, that which they cannot reason through, uh, that which cannot be uh, proved in a test tube. I mean, the idea of a resurrection, the idea of a person dying and then being raised out of the estate of death back to life. Uh, th this is trouble. This is troublesome for many to believe. But let's ask the question about that. Why is the resurrection so hard? If God can create us out of nothing, create everything that there is simply by commanding it into existence out of nothing, why is it so hard for him to raise the dead? What is so hard about a resurrection for Almighty God? Uh, well, the answer is it's... It's not. To say that the resurrection is possible would be to rid God of his sovereign power, to rid him of his strength, which is what Jesus is talking about here. You know neither, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't realize the power of God here. This is not something that's hard for him to do. But Jesus also appeals to the word. Again, if we look at verse 31, he says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Here Jesus is making reference to the, to the story of Moses at the burning bush. Remember the story? Moses is traveling through the, the desert and all of a sudden he's, he sees a miracle. He sees a bush that's on fire. But the strange thing about this bush is it's, it's green in leaf in the midst of the flames. It's not being consumed. Well, it's meant to attract Moses' attention. 
Well, obviously Moses goes to check this thing out as we all would do. And as he, as he gets closer, uh, God introduces himself to Moses saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This is how God addresses himself. Now, by the time of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have long been dead and buried for many years. So what is God saying to Moses? Hi, Moses. I'm the God of a bunch of famous dead guys. <laughs> we, could <laughs> we couldn't imagine that, could we? That's silly, isn't it? God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's not God of a bunch of famous dead guys. No, and that's Jesus' point. God is the God of the living, not the dead. Therefore, what do we conclude from that? That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and well. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are flourishing in another world. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have stepped through the door of death into eternal life. But there's more to this. There's more to this. And we don't want to move on too quickly here. Because a major promise has been given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. In fact, in the narrative of Abraham that we have in Genesis, a pretty lengthy narrative of Abraham, that, that entire narrative is practically consumed with God's promise to Abraham. What did he promise Abraham? He promised that he would become a great nation, Genesis uh, 12, uh, 18. His descendants would receive a promised land, uh, Genesis 12, 7, and many other verses. Uh, he and his descendants would be God's own people, Genesis 17, 7 to 8, and that this promise would be extended to the far reaches of the world. So what are the promises? He'd become a great nation. He'd be led, he would lead his descendants into a promised land, that he and his descendants would become uh, his people. You shall be my people, I will be your God and that these promises would extend to the far reaches of this world. But Abraham died long before he could see these promises come to complete fruition, didn't he? In fact, these promises are still being worked out progressively, aren't they? They still haven't come to complete fruition. So what do we conclude from that? Did, Ab did, did God disappoint Abraham? Has he disappointed him? No. No, Abraham is alive, bearing witness to the progression of these promises as we speak. The author to the letter of Hebrews, he captures this very well in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. He says, By faith Abraham went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It becomes clear in verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Strangers and exiles on earth. Strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All of this to say that Abraham looked for the complete fruition of these promises in another life. The author to the letter of Hebrews is giving us 
some insights into the mind of Abraham here, isn't he? He understood that these promises were going to come to fruition in another, in another life. Now, we, we should drink very deeply from Christ's words here to the, to the Sadducees. We should drink very deeply of this. I'm not the God, or I am the God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. The most fearful thing that we face, I, I think by far, is our own death or the death of our loved ones. Would everybody say amen to that? There's not too much more fearful than that, is there? Um, what lies beyond that door? We've all been to the funeral parlors. That's a question that's on everyone's mind. What lies beyond the door? Well, uh, there's no reason to be in the dark on this, is there? If we know our Bibles and we know the power of God, there's no reason to be in the dark on this. You know, for those apart from Christ, there's nothing but eternal ruin beyond that door of death. In other words, for those who are apart from Christ, there's nothing but hell on the other side of that door. We don't hear that often enough. I don't really like saying it, but I have to. That's, that's the teaching of Scripture. And I tell you, the more I study the Scriptures, the more I'm afraid of that place. I'm really afraid of that place. But here's the good news and the comforting news that casts away all fear. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are in Christ Jesus, beyond that door is eternal life. Eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? You know, in just a couple of days after Jesus has this, the, after the Sadducees attempt to trap Jesus, Jesus willingly lays his life down on the cross, doesn't he? And he's crucified for the sins of his people. And three days later, his body is raised from the dead. Forty or so days later, he, is a, he ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he is alive. He is risen. He's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. With Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And that should fill our hearts with joy. Gee, Christ is alive, making it very clear that those who die in Christ will be alive as well. And our fear gives way to joy when we see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Our fear gives way to joy when we see the power of God. Death is powerful, isn't it? Death is powerful, but even death has to answer to God. Death is subservient to God. He proves it with the resurrection of Christ, doesn't he? There was a famous book written uh, by uh, Dr. John Owen, the death of death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. Christ is victorious over death. And this is the joy of the word and power of God, that those who trust in Christ will join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be with Christ for all eternity. I mean, here we see what Jesus is talking about, don't we? The word, the power of the word. And the power of God. Fear gives way to joy. Darkness gives way to light. And death gives way to life. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these, these simple words that you, you give to the, the Sadducees who are attempting to ensnare you. 
uh, simple words that we that we we working and committing to memory this week for you're you are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For you are not God of the dead, but you are God of the living. And from that simple verse, from that simple word, O oh Lord, we, we can have such hope and such joy. And as that verse is placed under the, uh, the scrutiny of the New Testament, we have so much more light than what these men had. For we see, O oh Lord, that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And, O oh Lord, by His resurrection, we, uh, we see uh, we see the life that is awaiting us. We see it dimly, but we see it. So, O oh Lord, we pray that you impress these things upon our hearts. Fill our hearts, O oh Lord, uh, with the joy of the word and power of God. And to these ends, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Everyone said, Amen.